Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. JBR Capital has sponsored the Intercooler podcast for several months now. You've probably heard me talk about the company before. In that time, I've come to really understand what it is that makes JBR Capital different to other car finance companies. If I had to boil it down to one thing, I'd say it's this. Car finance is all JBR Capital does. Might sound like a minor detail, that, but in fact, it's really important. It means JBR Capital has a profound understanding of the car marketplace and of car buyers, an understanding that other finance companies could only hope to have. In fact, that very focused approach is exactly why the company was started in the first place. We recently had Darren Seelig, founder of JBR Capital, on the podcast, episode 106, if you want to go back and listen. And he explained that he started the company when he realised that general finance lenders actually didn't understand cars or car buyers particularly well at all. So he spotted that gap in the market and he founded JBR Capital to fill it. So before you buy your next car be it a supercar, sports car, classic car, a hypercar, or a luxury car, even if it's a brand new car, go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. And it really helps us if you tell them that the intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 118 of the podcast, everybody. Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel with you here. Now, I feel, Andrew, like this is the episode of the podcast that you've been waiting for. It's amazing it's (laughs) taken us 118 episodes to get here because we're talking about, I say Scuderia Ferrari, but that's wrong, isn't it? I don't know. I I haven't even thought about it. I just say Scuderia. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I don't know what there is right the right route. I remember Sterling always used to always used to call a South of France principality Monaco, and we always yeah. used to laugh at him. Um, <laughs> so I don't know whether it's Scuderia. You say Scuderia, I say Scuderia. I'm not sure it really matters. Well, someone will let us know, I'm sure. But the point is, we're talking about Ferrari's racing team, um, and that's not just Formula One. Um, that's kind of across the disciplines, isn't it? And we'll explain why. Um, 
We're doing this now because, well, A, Ferrari has just won the Austrian Grand Prix, Charles Leclerc, so it's a good time to do it. But that was also the midpoint of the 22 Formula One season. Um, and it looks as though Ferrari really has a shot at one of the championships, at least this year. Um, as long as they continue to get their act together on strategy and reliability, that was a problem over the weekend for them, wasn't it? Um, Blimey. But midway through the season... Where do they stand? The scary thing for Ferrari is Charles might have won last week, the weekend just gone. That was only his third Grand Prix win this year. Max Verstappen has won six. You know, I th- I, you kind of start thinking, don't you, that Charles should be world champion in, in sort of the court of rightness. Um, he has the fastest car and the bloke with the fastest car should win. But you're only as good as your team. And, you know, and gosh, you know, as Sebastian Vettel will tell you, just having the fastest Ferrari or the fastest car in Formula One, when it's a Ferrari, doesn't guarantee you world championships. And they, they have in the past, you know, snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. And unless they can get that thing reti- uh, reliable and, you know, they have... I think I read somewhere that in the last, before last weekend, in the last five races, Charles had a genuine chance of winning them, um, but didn't on four of those five occasions through problems, none of which were of his own creation, all of which um, were either down to mechanical unreliability or poor, poor calls from the pit wall. Um, and, you know, you can't be doing that, can you? When you're up against Red Bull. Well, historically, when you've been up against Mercedes-Benz, you know, and it's so much more, isn't it, than building a really fast car and then putting a really quick driver in it. It does show, you know, that teams can lose championships and absolutely they can win them too. But, you know, everybody has to be on top of their game, you know, from the people back in the factory who put the cars together to the people on the pit wall who, you know, tell their drivers what to do. And if you haven't got that complete package... You know, I, for myself, well, I mean, I've said this before on this podcast. Um, I, I, Scuderia Ferrari, Scuderia Ferrari, um, means so much to me. Um, and I draw a complete distinction between that and their road cars, which I can assess as objectively as, as, as anything else I drive. But, you know, when I was a kid growing up, um, it was just all Ferrari and it was all Ferrari racing cars. And I was, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up in that sort of 70s era when the cars looked amazing and it was, you know, it was Nicky Lauda doing his thing and, um, and Jody Schechter and Gilles Villeneuve and all that lot. And, you know, ever since then, it's, it's awful thing to say, I just want Ferrari to win. Uh, I just always do, almost regardless of who they're up against. So, yeah, you're right. I've waited, um, yes, 117 podcasts um, until, until this one to have a proper chat about it. But I'm not sure. I'd be interested to see what the bookies say about it. I mean... Charles should be world champion this year. He has the fastest car. We saw that in Austria, didn't he? He overtook Max three times. And we know how difficult Max is to overtake. And he basically breezed up and went straight past him three times um, during the course of that race. Um, and even with a problem with the sticking throttle at the end, he still managed to keep Max, hold Max off. He was Apparently, he was, trying to, he was having to return the accelerator pedal with his foot. And he was still quick enough to keep Max at bay, which... You know, given how well he looked after his tyres during the race, does make you wonder, doesn't it, how much he actually had up his sleeve? He probably could have gone a lot faster. Now, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, you're, you're quite right. It was a racy car. There's no question about that. So we will come on to 
Scuderia Ferrari um, momentarily and talk about some of the history of the team as well. Um, before we do that, just a couple of other things that I want to mention. So our website, brand new website, went live um, over the last few days. Um, the-intercooler.com if you want to go and have a look. We've had brilliant feedback and a, a very positive response so far. So thank you everyone who's had a look at the website, who's signed up, who's got in touch to tell us what you think. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's always a, a nerve-wracking time launching something like that and you just wonder how smoothly it's really going to go. And A couple of sort of teething issues aside, I think it did go so far relatively much, smoothly. Much, much more smoothly than I thought it was going to go. Yeah, so it's... It's such a relief to get it out there, and the response has been very positive, so thank you all. Um, to existing app subscribers, people who have already subscribed to the Intercooler via the app, if you want to access the website, what you need to do is go to the app first. You'll find an article there. It's pinned to the top of the main feed. In that article, you'll find a link that you have to follow. Click on the link. Um, that'll take you to a form where you can create your website account, and it'll take you less than a minute and you'll be straight into the website. Um, It's very easy to do. Um, If you haven't yet subscribed, have a look, see what you think. You can start a one month free trial, get a taste for what it is that we do. Um, We think you'll like it, so start your free trial. Um, That's the website. We're gonna keep banging on about it because it is important to us, but we'll leave it there for now. Um, Just before we move back on to Ferrari, Andrew, uh, well, there were lots of Ferraris there, weren't there? Supercar drivers, oh, secret meet. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. We were all there last There's nothing week. nothing particularly secret about it, is it? Not very secret at all. It's all over social media. <laughs> they, yeah, they tell you exactly when it's going on, where it's happening. Um, I, it was the first time we'd been. I didn't really know what to expect. But actually, I've, we found maybe the most extraordinary collection of very tasty cars that I've ever seen. I mean, yeah, I think as far as supercars are concerned, absolutely. Because, I mean, you can go to a Goodwood and, you know, see all these amazing racing cars uh, or whatever. But in terms of, well, it does what it says on the tip, you know, supercars, um, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I went there thinking, I thought two things. One is it'll be, you know, a couple of hundred cars and 198 of them will be brand new um, supercars. And, you know, that's fine. But actually, it was, I don't know how many cars they had there, but, you know, it looked like thousands. And there were some of the most amazing cars. Um, you know, I don't think you could name a supercar which wasn't there. I saw a Spiker. <laughs> I mean, there were everything there. There were Paganis and Koenigseggs. But also things like, you know, Ferrari F50s. I mean, they are so rare. And they had like four or five of them there. There were so many F40s. All I mean, F40s were basically common, weren't they? Um, and yeah, it was just, you just walk around open mouth at all this extraordinary machinery. You know, we, we worked out that three fifths of the Lexus, I think there are only five Lexus LFAs, um, which are taxed in the UK at the moment. Three of them were at this meeting. So yeah, it's, um, it's fairly extraordinary. Um, so yeah, we had a good time, didn't we? We did, and actually, what I wasn't expecting was all the the racing cars that were there. Um, a load of F1 cars, some fairly significant ones as well, um, all being driven very quickly on circuit. I, I don't know what I was expecting from the track element, but for most of the day, the cars that were on track were being flogged. Yeah, and Group C cars as well. I mean, proper stuff. Mm. 
It was fantastic. Group, I C, was... Group C Mercedes and Porsches and Jaguars. And yeah. They're all there, weren't they? It was brilliant. Um, I was very lucky to sit next to our mate Karen Chandock in a uh, in DTO Motorsports 911 GT2 RS. Um, I'd never sat with Karun on uh, on a racetrack before, and it was honestly, it was a properly mind blowing experience. I've, I've sat with lots of quick drivers before over the years. You do in this line of work, but this I, I was really really amazed by it and. It's interesting watching a very, very skillful professional racing driver, former F1 driver, at work. And I was amazed at the energy that was in the car. Um, I was stunned at how late he was braking and how hard and braking right into the corner. I was staggered at how much speed he was able to carry into a corner. Speeds that I would assume would just make a car like that understeer straight into the gravel. Somehow, he was balancing it so that the rear was sliding as much as the front was and he was getting around the corner. It was incredible. And what I was sort of most blown away by was <laughs> how much track he would use. And I realise now, and this is topical after the weekend, isn't it? Why track limits is such an issue in F1? Because these guys, they treat a track totally different to how I do. I look at it and I see that wide grey bit in the middle and think that's the track. And sometimes I'll nibble a little bit of curb. But these guys, they see all of the curb and they see everything else that isn't grass or gravel. And they just think, well, I'll use that. And so they make the track so much wider. It means they take a wider line in, they can carry more speed, they go out wider on the exit. It means they can get on the power earlier. Um, and it was, it was, yeah, it was a masterclass. I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching Karun work. So... Thank you to him. Thank you to DJ Motorsport as well and Supercar Driver. It was quite an event. I suspect we'll be at the secret meet again next year, if you'll have us. Try and stop me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, all right, then. Let's get back to Scuderia Ferrari. One question that you did pose, to me at least, is, is Scuderia Ferrari the greatest race team ever? And you look at the history, look at all the achievements, not just in F1, um, and there's a very strong case to be made. However... You also made the point that in 43 years, only two drivers have won F1 titles for Ferrari. Michael Schumacher and Kimi Raikkonen. Only two in 43 years. That's quite a good little bit of lies, damn lies and statistics, because, of course, it's actually six world championships in that time, five for Michael, which looks a bit better. But even so, only two drivers in 43 years. Yeah, I on? mean, and also, you know, their last constructors' championship, Lewis's first drivers' championship, two thousand and eight. You know, it's a long old time, isn't it? Uh, and and actually, if you look back, you know, before then, okay, you have the Michael era, um, and you know, I, I I often think that the greatest thing that ever happened to Scuderia Ferrari was. Michael deciding to go to this, you know, 90, beginning in 1960s, and he just had his double world championship, hadn't he, with Benetton. Um, and he decides, because he just wants to be a Ferrari driver, and that says something as well, doesn't he? And Michael just wanted to be, despite the fact that Ferrari were absolutely um, not a front-running team at the time. And he knew it would cost him championships. 
um, but he wanted to be part of the renaissance of the Scuderia um, and you know he went there in 96 and spent you know four seasons building that car before he they, they delivered him what would then have been his third driver's championship but before that you know so he was champion with Ferrari in 2000 before that it had been 21 years J.D. Schechter, 1979. Yeah, and in the 70s, you know, fine, they got, uh, what did they do? 79, obviously, Schechter, 75, 77, louder. Before that, 1964, John Surtees. So they'd had an 11-year gap in from the mid-60s to the mid-70s. Um, so, I mean, it's, I think you're absolutely right. It is one of those things that you can prove whatever you like with statistics. You can show that they have won more races than anybody else uh they've won more championships um than anybody else but you know you can also say that's because they've been in it for longer than anybody else you know if you look at well mercedes were in it briefly in the 1950s but you can't really count that because they then disappeared for decades you know you look at mclaren which is the next oldest team on the grid you know ferrari were doing it for you know 15 seasons and and actually in those seasons when they were doing it they were the most successful seasons because they had Ascari and then they had Fangio and then they had Hawthorne and then they had Phil Hill and then they had Surtees you know all those world champions for Ferrari before McLaren had ever done a race so I do still think and, and when I say all this an awful lot of it is sort of devil's advocacy because I sometimes wonder to myself just try to justify to myself why I feel the way I do about um, about Ferrari. And, you know, sometimes you think maybe they are sort of resting on their laurels um, and that sort of thing. And I really don't know. But, I, you know, I think that certainly in recent years, given the resources at their disposal, the money, the drivers, the everything else, they should have just won more than they have. In Formula One, they should have won more than they have. You know, two drivers in four something years, uh, no constructors in the entire 2010 decade, um, you know, they're up against some, some formidable teams, but, you know, there should be no team more formidable than Ferrari. And, you know, uh, I just hope that they that their drought, which is what it is, and it's not their first one, um, comes to an end, maybe they, this year. They do have these barren spells, don't they? And I, I wonder why that is, because as, as you said, they have equal resources to anybody else. Those, At least, yeah. You know, and they attract the best drivers, the biggest sponsors, um, the biggest names on also, the engineering you would, you side. Would also say, you would also say, and you know, I'm sure Ferrari would disagree with this, but I think that there are an awful lot of people who would say that when it comes to getting the rub of the regulational green, um, in terms of, you know, the way that the FIA has regarded the team, that, you know, they certainly haven't been hard done by, have they? No. No, they haven't. Um, you often hear, or on occasions, I've heard technical di- directors who have gone to Ferrari describe what it's like, and it's, a, it's always a culture shock to them. There is a level of pressure and expectation that comes with um, the prancing horse. And it also seems that because of that pressure and because of that expectation, they aren't allowed to take a five-year view of it. Or in the past, they haven't been able to take a five-year view, rebuild and try and win the championship several years hence. These new technical directors are told, it has to be next year. You have to do it. And you can't win championships like that. No. And that's because Ferrari feels the pressure, the pressure to win, 
And that, to an extent, they are the victim of their own success, much more than any other team. You know, for, well, first of all, they've got some road cars to sell, um, which isn't the case for most of the other teams on the grid. Um, you know, Mercedes do, but, you know, let's never forget that Ferrari was a race team before it was a road car manufacturer. And in Enzo's eyes, the only point of the existence of the road cars is to was to finance um, the racing. And then, of course, and all that is before we even think about the Tifosi and we think about the Italian media and the pressure they create. So you can understand it, can't you? You can understand, you know, particularly as the years mount up, the winless years mount up, no championship this year, no championship this year. And then, you know, there's just this sort of pressure cooker, isn't there? And... I can see absolutely how that can lead to short-termism. And and it's only when you get that sort of campaign, you know, when Ross Braun and Rory Byrne and Michael, you know, sort of came together in the mid-1990s and literally just said, right, we're going we're gonna to plan this out and we are going to have a proper campaign. And then, you know, you have to wait a little bit, but when it happens, my goodness, you know, they were, they were unstoppable. That's what they need to do again. They need to take a view. Uh, I mean, I and think build a team the around the driver. Now. Yeah. And they've got, yeah. they've got him, haven't they? Um, well, I think they probably do, yeah. Now, I might get one or both of us in trouble here, but I wonder, what oh, are your on. experiences of working in Italy? In what regard? Um, let's, I, think, I think I know what you're driving at. Something very straightforward. Um, you want to... You're on a, a media event. Yeah. Um, and you have a job to do. Yeah. And is it is it straightforward to do the job that you want to do? You always come home with a job done, don't you? <laughs> Interesting, um, yeah. So so from that point of view, I wouldn't say it's straightforward. I mean I think that there is an attitude at Ferrari um which I understand that Ferrari is special um, and that anybody who gets to to drive one is to an extent lucky Um, and you know we we go I mean they are different aren't they you know they are you know a Ferrari launch is a much more in terms of the paperwork you have to sign before you go in terms of what you can do and it's better now than it used to be it certainly is much better now than it used to be um but yeah you are just much more i suppose the word is controlled um you know it's not just sort of you know toss you the keys see you later guys um it is you know they 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 do want to keep in charge of their events and i guess they are their events so maybe that's fair enough um but you always go out don't you just sort of thinking well i hope it's not going to be difficult um, to do the job you know you will do the job and you know you will get it done but sometimes you think actually you know it could have been made a lot easier um, I mean for instance things like you know and you've done this recently you go out there um, to drive some preposterously fast car and they give you three and a half laps of Fiorana to do it in and in that time you haven't got time to um, dial yourself in, to go through the various modes, um, to really assess the car. All you can really do, because 
it's your only opportunity to drive that car because I mean, for a modern Ferrari, you can't drive them flat out on the road. You'd be in, like, you know, like most modern supercars, they're so fast. There's no way you can drive them to the limit of what they can do on the public road. So you've got, I don't know what lap time is at Fiorano, but probably less than five minutes to do your total dynamic assessment of that car on the limit. And, you know, I don't understand why it has to be like that. Um, nobody else puts those sorts of limitations on you um you know why can't you have i don't know anybody else who give you less than 20 minutes in the car and 20 minutes in the car is enough five isn't particularly when you're dealing with you know cars with the performance tw- i can't remember what you're out in there you ran the 812 competency only weren't you and the sf90 quick yeah, stuff so, i mean ridiculously rapid cars um so it's that sort of thing um and, you know, this is kind of getting away from the um, Scuderia story. So I don't want to dwell on it. Um, but do you wonder whether those sorts of processes and methods um, sort of go throughout the business? I'm not sure. Well, that's right. That's the point I was making is that there is a Ferrari way of doing things. And yeah. you do wonder if that's across the organisation. And you do wonder if people arriving there from Britain, France, Germany, Spain, wherever else finds that a culture shock and finds that some way inhibiting i don't know it's it's i I also well i also don't know how receptive well i mean i suppose i do to an extent because in our little area um you know things haven't changed much i mean those launches have been those launches and they've been that way i mean they are starting to change i mean i think they you know they they had their first launch didn't they uh what did they launch the was it the rome or something they had their first ever car launch not in italy they went to Spain. Um, so, you know, that is changing. Um, and I think that's, I don't, I'm not sure whether that's good or bad, but it's certainly significant. Um, but it has taken, you know, a terribly long time. You know, I've been in this business for, you know, half a lifetime. And, you know, it really hasn't changed much. So I guess that if you are, you know, if that is a cultural, cultural thing at Ferrari and you are a new, you know, chief technical officer and you're going to the Scuderia and you want to go, okay, guys, um, fantastic to be here childhood dream to be at Maranello but if you want this team to win and to win big not just in one year but for year after year after year the sort of dominance that we used to have and that Red Bull went on to go and have and which Mercedes-Benz went on to go and have we need a campaign okay we need a three exactly what you said a three four year program at the end of which we are going to be the governors um and you know you can just hear them saying, well, you know, we can't have everybody complaining about Ferrari not winning again for the next three or four years. We need to win now. Um, so it's not easy, is it? <laughs> it's a sort of, it's its own thing, isn't it, Scuderia Ferrari and Ferrari as a whole. Um, so, okay, let's wind it back then. Let's talk about some of the history because you're, you're, you were right to say that Ferrari was a race team first. But even before Ferrari, there was Alfa Romeo. In the 1920s, Scuderia Ferrari um, was founded in 1929. Um, and it was originally Enzo, who was quite a successful racing driver in his own right. He came second in the Targa Florio one year. Um, so let's not forget that. Um, Enzo basically started his own race team for people, for Alfa Romeo customers, privateer Alfa Romeo. He'd go and run private Alphas for rich folk. Um, and he did it very well. He did it extremely well. Um, 
to the extent that in the sort of early mid 1930s when you know there was the terrible global recession and then the you know the auto unions the mercedes just came to completely dominate um grand prix racing um and alfa romeo were in a were, were in a bit of a parlor state um they said to Ferrari, you know, right, become our official race team, run our official race team. That's why when you see Nuvolari, you know, winning races in those monoposto Alfa Romeo P3s, they've all got prancing horses slapped on the sides of them. That's why, um, you know, Ferrari was basically the Alfa Romeo race team. Um, and he was for quite a long time. And then Alfa decided they're going to bring it back in-house. Um, and the way they did that was actually to, I think they actually bought the team uh, and bought Ferrari with it. Um, and surprise, surprise, Ferrari decided that he quite enjoyed working for himself and didn't get on terribly well with, you know, being told what to do by Alfa Romeo Top Brass. So he then left, I think in 1939, uh, and was told part of the severance deal was that he couldn't put his own name on a car for four years. Um, so he created this thing called the AAC815 Auto Avio Construzione, I think, um, in 1940, which was looking like it was eight-cylinder, straight-eight, 1.5-litre uh, race car. Um, and it was looking like that could be quite successful. But then, obviously, a, a global conflict got in the way. Uh, and it was only once all that had been sorted out that he was able to start, you know, creating racing cars. And, you know, the Ferrari that we know today began. So did he, And he later on ventured into road cars as a way of funding the race team. Yeah, I is mean, that they were true pretty or is much that... hand in hand, um, you know, because back then you tended to race, you know, you tended to race your road car. Um, but it was founded as a as a race team um, and the first cars were racing cars. But the road cars, you know, so didn't weren't far behind because it's not like today, whereas the idea of, you know, trying to win, you know, Le Mans in a slightly tweaked version of a road car is preposterous. Back then, it's exactly what you went to do um so you know it was much less of a leap to have both um and obviously it was an extremely um effective revenue stream for him as well do you and, buy and, and I, 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 sorry go on do you buy this idea that he regarded the whole road car side as a necessary evil absolutely you, th- you do yeah yeah absolutely i don't i really don't think he ever had any great interest in in, in his road cars um there are some there's oh there's a good book hang on if you're watching this on YouTube, if you can't, I'm oh, sorry, but there's a book I'm holding up here called Enzo Ferrari, The Man, The Machine by Brock Yates, the late, great Brock Yates. It's the best, one of the best automotive biographies that's ever been written. Um, and it is intentionally controversial and polemical. But yeah, I mean, it gives the lie on all these sorts of things. You know, Brock Yates says that Ferrari thought that his customers were sort of, you know, rich people with more money than sense um there to have their funds relieved of them by him and to finance his his racing exploits um and i've never heard that argument rebutted by anybody so i suspect that there's more than a little in it okay and what what about another i'm sure you've heard this line before um he's, i think it's regarding le mans and some of the some of the competition that his cars are up against um, and he says that aerodynamics is for people who can't build engines. <laughs> but that, I mean, that was just, I mean, Enzo Ferrari, you know, he loved to be called Ingegnere, engineer, but actually 
He was so far behind the times on so many things. You know, name a great racing innovation. It wasn't on a Ferrari. Oh, no, hang on. But this was after he died. Um, the sequential paddle shift gearbox. Um, that came first on a Ferrari. But that was, you know, after he was... Next. You know, they never did anything first. They didn't do disc brakes first. They didn't do um, mid-engine configurations first. You know, he spent the first few years of building Grand Prix cars doing these um, one-and-a-half-litre supercharged cars because that's what Alfa Romeo did. Um, and it wasn't successful. And it was only when finally um, a really great guy called Raymond Sommer, who I'm going to write about shortly uh, on the app and on the website, um, persuaded him that what he needed was a naturally aspirated four and a half litre car. The you know the Ferrari's racing fortunes turned around in in, in Formula One. Um, so he was never an innovator. He absolutely um, was wedded to the idea of having these amazing engines um, and the rest of the car. I mean, they weren't quite cobbled together because the engineers who built them um, were smarter than that, but they were dominated by their engines and he built the most exquisite, wonderful engines. And, you know, in the early years, he was extremely successful with them too. So, you know, some would say that he had a point, but no, you're absolutely right. Um, he failed to move with the times. He was he could not be persuaded that an engine all an engine did was make the car a car accelerate faster in a straight line it didn't help it go around a corner it didn't help it stop and that if you want a truly successful racing car uh, it's kind of helpful if it does all three things um and he you know he was absolutely wedded to his to his engines particularly his beloved v12s he was also wedded to certain drivers wasn't he he was yeah um I mean, certainly people who raced for him, there were two in particular at either ends of his, his lifetime. In the 30s, there was Nuvolari. Uh, and then towards the end of his life, there was Gilles Villeneuve, who he called the new Nuvolari. Uh, but in between, there were lots of drivers, particularly British drivers, actually. Um, guys like uh, Peter Collins and, uh, and Mike Hawthorne, who, you know, he was also very close to, um, thought very highly of but not that that ever um stopped him sort of pitching driver against driver um and using rivalries um to you know there are lots of people who would say that um people died in ferraris because of the pressure that were put on them by enzo ferrari when he pitched driver against driver i've never bought that idea um, I just don't think so. Uh, I just don't think that's... And, and the other thing I would say is I think one of the most admirable things uh, about Ferrari racing cars is that he built them strong. Um, I've... I think I've said on this podcast before, I don't know a single person who died in a Ferrari racing car through mechanical failure of a Ferrari part. Which, given the era that they raced through, through the 50s, 60s, 70s, um it's absolutely extraordinary um and given that you know they were in pretty much every race um so he did care about his driver because otherwise you know he would have built cars to be as flimsy as possible and you know and we know that others took that view um i think nevertheless whether he intended to or not i think drivers absolutely felt the pressure um and he did egg him on and you know an awful lot of people did die in Ferraris um, mainly through either um, the fault of proprietary parts like tyres blowing or, or also just through driver error. Wow. It, there really is something about Ferrari, Scuderia Ferrari. When you go to Marinella and you go to Fiorano, 
I just and you see the it looks like, I guess it's an old farmhouse where that's where he would stay when he was at the track and where he would watch Grand Prix and he would often when the team was testing just plonk a chair out by the side of the track and just sit there watching um, and I don't know what it is but all of that stuff when you're in that place you really feel it it just seeps out of every wall um, and it's a it is an amazing experience I love going there um, we should talk a little bit about Le Mans because in the last week or so, were they spy shots that we saw of Ferrari's new Le Mans car or were hypercar or I were think, they? I th- well, I, th- I, th- I think they were sort of spy, not spy, weren't they? Yeah, well, yeah, and I think there was a teaser, wasn't there? But, um, but the car yes, I mean, that's Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's the big news, isn't it? Um, you know, Ferrari goes back to Le Mans uh, next year, 2023, first time in 50 years. So in 1972, I just do want to talk a little bit about their sports cars because you know people always think of Ferrari, they think of Formula One. But actually, I haven't done a statistical analysis of this, but, you know, Ferrari have won Le Mans, oh, God knows. I mean, not, I mean, not quite as many as, um, as Audi or Porsche, but I mean, they're up in double digits. They've also won Sebring, I think, eight times, Targa Florio seven times, Mille Miglia eight times. Um, Daytona 24 hours they've won you know, there is no event in sports car racing that Ferrari has not won at some stage or another and we and actually when I think of Ferraris and I think of the Ferraris that I re, you know certainly in terms of the way they appear um, it's cars like P4s and 512s's and that sort of thing that really really get me going um, and it's funny to think isn't it they've basically been you know other than their GT programs they've been out of that business for for 50 years uh, and in fact um, you know they last won Le Mans and it was a private car that did it in 1965 um, you know when Ferrari last won Le Mans I wasn't alive and I'm really old <laughs> um, so um, you know so there's unfinished business there and, I, 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 and one of the things I find interesting about this is why they're going back now because it was always held wasn't it that um, in you know so certainly in recent times it's simply not in terms of money or in terms of manpower possible to have works teams in Formula One and works teams in sports cars and people often attributed Ferrari's uh, woes particularly in that period from you know the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s when Ferrari were doing both um, and frankly weren't winning anything because you know Formula One cars like the Porsche 917 were you know duffing them up um, and they couldn't keep up with the Ford GT40s, sorry, in sports cars and in Formula One, uh, they weren't winning either. Um, yeah, and people did say, well, that's because you spread too thin. So why are they doing, going down that road again? Why have they got work sports car and F1 teams? Well, to me, and I don't know this, but I think it's for the same reason that Red Bull are doing a hypercar. I think it's so they can hang on to their staff. You know, they are talking about, you know, there's a massive cost cap in Formula One now. Uh, Le Mans cars are I was looking at the regs an LMH car um, is intended to cost to be 60% cheaper than a a current LMP1 um, prototype so it's much cheaper to do it and much more important than that is they've got all this manpower that unless they employ them somewhere else they're going to lose and it's not just that they haven't got that manpower what it means is that others will so in a way you could argue that Ferrari is going sports car racing 
to keep itself more competitive in Formula One because it, the last thing it wants are its best talents going off and working for, for rival teams. So, I mean, I don't know any of this. It's all supposition on my part, but my strong hunch is that the reason that Ferrari is doing this is not because they, they, you know, they've suddenly become over all misty-eyed um, about sports car racing and you know, 50 years and everything else. It's got nothing to do with it. It's because um, they spotted an opportunity and good on them. Yeah, why not? I can't wait. Fantastic. I just can't wait. Yeah, this cost cap in F1, I'm all for it because it was getting absurd, the amount that the teams are spending. It should bunch the field up a bit. And it looks like the, the big F1 teams are branching out and doing other fun things, which is great for car fans, great for racing fans. So yeah, I'm all for it. And who knows, in time, it might even attract some other people into Formula One, who at the moment yeah. simply couldn't think about doing it. Yeah. And that would be fantastic too. Brilliant. Um, right, while we're, t- while we're talking about Ferrari sports cars, and you've mentioned 512s, let's yeah. just use this opportunity to explain why the intercooler's tagline is where the writer meets the road. It's a good story. It's called where the writer meets the road because it is the title of the autobiography of um, one of my heroes. There's a bloke called Sam Posey. Sam is, because thank goodness he's still with us, um, Sam was a fantastic driver, an American, um, very successful in all manner of, in all different categories of sports car racing and um, IndyCar and um, all sorts of races in the US. But he was also um, very successful in sports cars. And if it hadn't been for the um, Porsche 917 getting in the way, he would have, you know, he would have been much more successful than he, than he was. I mean, for instance, in 1970, 1971, um, he was first car home behind the 917s in both times driving a 512S. And this book, Where the Writer Meets the Road, it is, the thing about Sam is that if he does anything better than drive a car, it's right about driving cars. Uh, and he's a phenomenal writer. And um, he's not been brilliantly well for quite a long time now. Um, and he's gone public with this, that he's had Parkinson's. Um, so he won't mind me talking about it. Um but when you know when we were thinking of a tagline for the intercooler business, and I just thought to myself, it's never going to be a better expression of what we are about than that phrase. Um, and I didn't just think that I could nick it. Um, so I hadn't been in touch with Sam for many years. It's not since I was the editor of Motorsport um, when he very kindly wrote some amazing stories for us. Um, but I got back in touch with him. Um, and he, of course, was just chuffed and delighted and touched and happy and proud that that, that, that we thought it was something that we'd want to use. So, yep, that's it. It's all down to Sam. Sam Posey. Great, great man. Yeah, brilliant. Check out that book, Where the Writer Meets the Road, if you can find one. Um, good. Is there anything else you want to say about Scuderia Ferrari? Um, no, other than I really, really hope that they start winning again. Um, <laughs> you know, they've... Some of the car, you know, if you think about the cars, um, so much of this is visual actually, but you think about, you know, a 1950s Testarossa or 1960s 250 GTA or a P4 or 512S, um, and those are just the sports cars. Um, these are cars that, I mean, how many people have had a lifelong love of cars fired up by? Images of those cars, um, you know, the red cars with the V12 engines. Um, it's just magical. It really is. And, you know, we live in a rather different age now and it's all very hard-nosed and it's all business. And I suspect it was back then, to be honest. Um, and we sort of put the rose-tinted specs on when we look back at these things and think, oh, that was another era. And maybe it was in some ways and maybe it was in other ways. But they've also just been, 
the sort of the thread that's run through everything, hasn't it? There's always been, Ferraris have just always been racing. Certainly through the conscious memory of anyone listening to this, Ferraris have been racing. Um, And, you know, no individual team is bigger than the sport in which it races. But there's also no question at all that were Ferrari to stop racing, that would cause an amount of damage uh, and they would be more missed than any other team any other team in the history of the sport and that is that is the legacy i suppose uh, and i suppose that all speaks to why i always have since the my earliest memories um put ferrari as a race team in a kind of different category to everything else regardless of how successful they are well there we go scuderia ferrari we look forward to watching the second half of the f1 season this year Seeing if yeah. Ferrari and Charles Leclerc. So, okay, so and, now, let me ask you: So, is, go are on. they going to do it? Are, are, are Ferrari going to trip over their shoelaces again and let Max through? I mean, I think I'm not answering your question for you. I think that if Ferrari can get it together and keep it together for the rest of the season, I think Max can be took, can be caught, and I think he can be overtaken. I think Charles can be world champion. So, my question to you is: Will they do it? Will they do it? Um. I think not. I think not. I think Max and Red Bull are a bit too strong, too slick. Um, I know the Ferrari is quicker over the weekend, but I think they still have an edge. I think Ferrari are yet to become that well-drilled organisation that you have to be to beat Red Bull and Max. Um, I don't think they will. I'd actually, I'd love to see it happen. I don't think it will. Um, But it's going to be fun watching and finding out isn't it i can't wait definitely um all right well we've got a listener question coming up again i haven't sent you this one in in advance um but you'll have a view um before we do that let me just say thank you to jbr capital for sponsoring the podcast um if you're looking to buy a new car or a used car go and see what jbr capital can do for you on the finance side Please also rate and review the podcast. Subscribe wherever you watch or listen to the podcast. That really helps. Please do do it. If you've been meaning to do it every time you hear me bang on about it and you haven't done it yet, please do go and subscribe or follow. Um, So the listener question this week, just to finish this episode, comes from John the Farm Vet. He says, I hear you talk about chassis on the podcast and I'm interested to know whether a sports car is always compromised by having been built on a chassis borrowed from that of a hatchback or a saloon. He says uh, the Audi TT would be the most obvious example. Would such a car always be compromised in its handling compared to, for example, an MX-5 with a bespoke chassis? Yes. There you go. Yes, it's simple, isn't it? <laughs> we can, uh, and um, we can talk always. about some of the reasons uh, why. Yeah, uh, yes, I mean, yes, yes absolutely. Um, and, you know... The, that that shouldn't be surprising, could, should it? I mean, you know, in the same way, you know, let's just bring it back to racing cars. You know, you have GT cars, don't you, which are based on road cars, um, and then you have prototypes, which are purpose built. Anything in any sphere, if it is designed for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is the purpose to which it is put, is going to be better than something that's been adapted from something else. Um, it's yeah, um, so. Someone may well come on and think of an exception, but I can't think of one myself. No, I think that if you're going to do a purpose-built sports car, it's just going to be, unless you make a complete pig's ear of it, it's going to be a better car than something that's being converted from something else. Yeah, and taking the example of a TT, 
You know, no high-performance TT has ever been more rewarding to drive than a comparable Cayman or Boxster. Um, and it's worth thinking about some of the reasons why. So, you know, when you've got a car that is ultimately, or a platform that ultimately underpins a VW Golf, um, you've got a transverse engine. Um, so it goes, I suppose, sideways in the in the engine bay rather than lengthways, which most sports cars will do. That means it's not going to be rear-wheel drive. You might have a four-wheel drive system, but typically that'll be front-biased. You are unlikely... Well, certainly if it's based on a Golf, you're going to have um, McPherson struts up front. You're not going to have double wishbones all round like lots of bespoke yep. sports cars do. Not all. Um, yep. You're going to have a higher centre of gravity. Um, the weight distribution is not going to be optimal. Um, it's everything, isn't it? Not one thing will be optimised for a performance car um, in the way that it can be if you start from scratch and build a bespoke sports car. So... Yeah, I mean, it's it get it's almost the case the fact that you could say a TT isn't a sports car at all. Um, it might be a performance no. car, and, but it's not a sports and, and, car. And if you look at you know something like, forgive me for mentioning this again, but an Alpine, an A110, you know, they could probably have pushed and pulled the Megane around and put the same powertrain in it and come up with some kind of sports car. But you know, it wouldn't have been TI's one and only ten star car. I can pretty much guarantee you that. Um, you know, it's because it does the job it's designed to do. Any more than if you took a purpose-built sports car and tried to make a hatchback out of it. It wouldn't be very good at that either because, you know, you wouldn't be able to package the engine because it had wishbones in the front and, you know, um, you wouldn't, it wouldn't have a boot because it's rear-wheel drive and, you know, it'd just be all over the place. So, yeah, uh, hopefully that um, is a full comprehensive answer to your question. I think so. John, thank you for your question. Please get your questions in. You can send us a direct message on Instagram. You can email us info at the hyphen intercooler.com find us on twitter whatever you want to do um we like ending the podcast with your questions so please get them across um and we'll do it again next week the forte deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 